Hi, this is your host, Christina Stroud. Welcome to Manufacturing 365, where we spend time learning from each other. We will hear from manufacturing rock stars, startup founders, thought leaders, and others to support this platform's purpose. We'll share ideas, set examples, and be a little thought-provoking in the manufacturing world. Today, I'm excited to have our very first guest, Clemens Smitch Houston, who I have known for many, many years. Clemens has had various executive roles in global manufacturing companies and now owns an international consulting company. He was also the honorary consul of Germany during his time here in South Carolina. Clemens, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. It's wonderful. Well, I appreciate you giving me some of your time. I know you're in Germany now, so the time difference is there. So spending some of your evening with me, I I really appreciate. Yeah, we're six hours apart and I'm looking at the first snowflakes uh, falling down by my window. I am not jealous. I'm not a snow fan by any stretch of the imagination. Once, Once a year for me in South Carolina is plenty. That's true. That's what I thought when I lived there too. Exactly the same. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is relocating there was escaping the Munich weather, basically. That's right. I'm sure. <laughs> what I'd like to do is maybe start out by telling everyone how you and I know each other. Uh, so while you were here in South Carolina, where I am, you were the plant president of BMW Manufacturing. And I was a human resources manager in the plant as well. And so we had the opportunity for several years to work on a plant expansion and a a launching a new vehicle and a lot of other very challenging and exciting times. And so that's how we met many years ago. And I have been fortunate to be able to stay in touch with you all this time. Why don't we start out by you telling me a little bit about your career story? Who is Clemens and, and how have you gotten to where you are now? Yeah, glad to do that. Thanks for having me, Christina. I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity of doing this and the experience. This is my first participation in a podcast and uh, we'll see where that takes us. I thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, Glad to share some of uh, the journey that I had throughout my career. And uh, basically, I was, um, as people might expect, I was trained as an engineer, as a mechanical engineer. Went to school in Aachen, Germany, which a lot of us believed at that time was the best of the, the best school in the world. Not everybody may share that opinion, but we surely were proud of uh, going there. I majored... Um, in manufacturing engineering and took that all the way to graduate level. Then uh, I worked in contract research close to the university affiliated with a prominent German institution by the name of Fraunhofer. They also have an outpost in South Carolina today. And um, this is where I completed my PhD and I then became the managing chief engineer of that facility. and. Interestingly enough, this is how I got in contact initially with them um, for the first time with automotive OEMs as they were our clients, as were U.S., big U.S. manufacturing companies such as United Technologies, Pratt & Witness, of course, Kia at that time. And it was a very interesting time that uh, basically uh, that basically stirred my love uh, for a time in America and um which is what we later actually did. Then I joined BMW for 17 years. And uh, while I was still serving as an adjunct professor um, at the school, and I was in charge of uh, wonderful things, experimental vehicles, 
which I still believe is the best job that BMW has to offer, as it is at the intersection of inner sanctum of decision making and the toy store. So very enjoyable uh, part, and there's only one jo- job like this in in uh, BMW. Then um, then I looked after the uh, the process chain of painted body. That included all the, the stamping facilities globally, tool and die operations, uh, manufacturing planning for all the paint shops and the body shops globally. And then I had uh, the pleasure uh, and the honor to serve as the president of BMW Manufacturing for around about three years. And at that time, that was in the early 2000s, we were still building what at that time we used to call a bike and a bus, which was the Z4 and the outgoing first generation of the the X3. Wonderful experience and great vehicles that the plant built at that time. And since 15 years, I have now owned um, and operated my own company, CSJ Company, and we are helping our clients in transatlantic situations in both directions and uh, basically we serve as a companion and matchmaker for our clients. Sounds strange, but it apparently does add a lot of value to what they're doing when they are considering a manufacturing site on the other side of the uh, of the pond. And uh, uh, the interesting point there is that my clients in this in this company are mainly family-owned businesses, and that has a lot to do with, with my own upbringing and my, uh, my own career. And as an interlude, in between all of that, I squeezed in um, several years with an electrical vehicle startup in California, and that was a fascinating piece for uh, guys of my age, dinosaurs of the auto industry in their early 60s. And about 400 young kids from engineering school, all under 40, all with a couple of years under their belts and uh, other startups and a fascinating experience for me to do that. So, so that gives you a little bit of an idea of what my journey has been so far. And there is no end in sight, Christina. Which is good for all of us in the automotive industry to hear. I know your your background is so well rounded. Um, do you do you have a, a preference for uh, working with some of the larger companies, or do you like that uh, chaos and fun of the startup world? I think there's there's several dimensions to that, and both of them have their benefits. It's it's always fascinating. To, uh, to move a tanker, to control a big ship and try to change the direction of that, which has been the case in BMW, which uh, has been the case with a lot of my clients. Um, and at the same time, the, the, the creativity and the speed and actually the fun to live with the, uh, without the legacy of the history is fascinating when you work in a startup environment and both have their benefits. Uh, it's fascinating to transfer experience from one to the other because this is where it comes to motivating people to get people to reflect on their ways to work. And that has always been uh, a great excitement for me. Uh, and so I thoroughly enjoyed that. But it's also another dimension, which is 
family-owned private businesses versus businesses and companies that are, that are publicly listed because the culture, the responsibility, and the style is uh, fairly different between those two categories. And I have thoroughly enjoyed, um, I would say, sidestepping and migrating between the cultures and the styles of different types of companies. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, it does. And I, I completely understand. I spent most of my career when I was in manufacturing on the, the larger scale and growing the large uh, companies and thoroughly enjoyed it, but decided to try my hand at a couple startups and selling some businesses. It's a completely different experience. You use the same skill sets. Um, but I, I just found it very challenging in a different way uh, and, and used my mind differently. And the people are definitely different, too. And it always surprises you, right? There's always an unforeseen turn and twist of the road in that, in that uh, change of a culture. And I found it very exciting and most of the time enjoyable and enriching to see what you can do under different uh, circumstances. Absolutely. Absolutely. So why, why did you choose manufacturing as a career? What led you down that path? Because I, I, I know a lot of people, uh, it's a very intentional path and other people sort of fall into it at, at some point in their career. Tell us your story. Well, it's, um, it's, it's kind of uninspiring, I have to say that. And uh, the, most, the most obvious and apparent part is that I grew up in a family in a family business of several generations that was actually making something. So, so, so that was uh, part of what we were used to do and how we were thinking, because I, I, I think people who make, who create something, it's, 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 it's uh, their own way of thinking. The, the next thing that, that brought me there is that I liked to build and work on things for for my playing time, it was from all everything. It was model trains, then bicycles, eventually cars, and I was always the kid with the dirty hands. And uh, the uh, another thing was that my dad was a merchant, and uh, in the best sense of the word, and all he could technically do in the house was flip the light switch. So somebody had to be able to repair something, and since I was the only child in the household. I was the one who had to make sure that either the repairman was called or try it myself before that emergency happened. And uh, so uh, the final ingredient, and that was, don't forget, this was late 60s, early 70s when I had to make my choices of who I, of what I wanted to be and who I wanted to be. There was an engineer uncle who said that it was always a good idea and it was always uh, a sound and safe job that you would find with this and engineering would be a good choice for life. So all of that combined is what, uh, what brought me to engineering school in the end. And uh, so uh, uh, all of a sudden I ended there on, on day one of my undergraduate program. So it sounds like it was half intentional, half guided by uh, the folks and the circumstances around you. It was more guided than anything. I mean, this is, this is, I was a naive kid and I think it was a different way of growing up where it wasn't too much about your self-fulfillment. And I think at that time, even at late in high school, I wasn't the person who would have 
um, dedicated thinking to what I wanted to do. I just wanted to have fun. And this is basically the, the fun and the trust in the people who advised me was uh, were the key ingredients that took me there. It's, fair, it's fascinating to hear people's stories. Um, I think I, I don't I didn't know that about you. I had not heard that story before. So I appreciate you sharing it with no, all of us. I was not on a mission. I was not <laughs> on a mission at that time. <laughs> not a goal when you were eight years old. <laughs> clearly not. Clearly not. And I know those people. Yep. I have great respect for the determination and resilience that these people have. And I'm married to one of those. Um, but that would not have been my cup of tea. It simply, I, I simply didn't see it. And uh, um, even though I have to say, I never, I never regretted going to engineering school. I think it was a good fit, but I'm by far not a good engineer. Great. Um, so one of the challenges that a lot of manufacturing leaders have is balancing the technical with the uh, people side uh, in the manufacturing world and those working in manufacturing. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that balancing act that you've had and how did you manage it? I, I, have, I have to go back a little to that day one when I was uh, starting class um, at, engineering, at, at engineering school. And I, because that, is, that, has a lot of, that has a lot to do with, with, with my later career track, um, the, the interesting thing is when I, when I started school at college, there was a clear, this gross, very gross misconception on my side of the content of the engineering program. I, I mean, I had focused at school, at high school on, on languages. I was pretty fluent in French. I could speak and understand a little bit of Latin and, uh, there was this English language that has always been part of me, but uh, I didn't take anything like AP or equivalent classes in calculus or physics at high school. And the interesting thing, so I'm sitting in my first mechanics class and I'm seeing the word sine and cosine on the board. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what in the world does that mean? It's truly the case. I did not have any geometry at school and I was completely unaware of what all of this um, meant and and it was a somewhat painful epiphany uh, for me on that day and um, uh, then and, and and I really think it it taught me um, it taught me a lot about resilience and persistence uh, to bite my way through all of that because I was completely unaware. And um, even more so, it, it told me to pick the right crowd. Um, you know, I needed to study with somebody and to go through all of that with people that knew this calculus piece inside and out because I never would have had the, the energy to learn all of that uh, myself. So I had to learn with somebody. And at the same time, I had to offer them something as well to create a win-win situation. And the trade was that they helped me with calculus and I had a car. And that was not normal. The 1970s in, in, in a German college town and the school was not a campus university like you would have it in the U.S. The facility was spread all over town and we permanently had to move 
from one class to the other by using the car. So I had the car, offered the transportation. They had the knowledge about calculus and that created a good and true geometry. And that created a good win-win situation, which, which carried me through this thing. And um, I really have to say, and this is when I realized that um, doing things with people was as important as understanding science and uh, the technology. And so uh, there's two things that I'm still very proud about and proud of is that the guy who really taught me all of that, one of the, the closest uh, people that I teamed up with is still a very, a very uh, close friend of mine today. And the other thing is what I learned in that part of resilience that I'm still thinking I was extremely fortunate that with, I managed to organize myself in a way that I never failed an exam. So, so somehow I floated through all of this mess. And the fascinating piece was when I was in contract research, all of a sudden a client showed up and the, the boss said to me, um, oh, the way these, 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 but by the way, all these folks have come from Ireland. Could you do the presentation today in English? And all of a sudden I was the only guy that had the capabilities of doing that. And it didn't matter if I was a good engineer, the, um, customer happened to be impressed by the language capabilities that we could offer and accommodate him from that side. So, so, so this is, this is when I learned that, um, that what you think is a disadvantage for you may turn exactly the opposite way, uh, later in your career. And this helped me many, many times the understanding of things that you were not thinking of in the first place. And I just happened to know those and could add them, could contribute and could improve my position, my situation um, a lot by being, by being able of this. And um, yeah, that helped me a lot. And, and that taught me that um, engineering, I, I always felt that engineering is a content piece where you actually talk about uh, uh, things and numbers and results, but it's also engineering is a leadership tool. And, and, um, do you want to have an example for that? I was just about to ask for one. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the what I wanted to say is, and where I wanted to go is when, um, when I was leading people in big organizations at the plant, um, I always, and you know that I made it a point to walk around and talk to people all over the place whenever I had the time and the situation would allow for that. And the idea was when we talked about cars, we talked about making cars, we talked about the properties of cars and whatever. And these people, I had to lead them at the same time. And there was a clear reflection when they came to the conclusion that I was not giving them bullshit with the technical stuff that we talked about. They could trust me when they had to trust me in leaderships, uh, leadership issues, because there were always things that I had to say that they couldn't immediately verify. And uh, having talked to the engineering stuff and having found a common base, a common foundation with that, they would trust me with the leadership that I had to, uh, with the leadership subjects and things that I had to convey as well. And so 
I always thought that uh, there is an ambivalence in engineering, which, which has a hard part and a soft part. And the soft part is the language conveyor that you can, that you use it for as a leader. And uh, I think that helped me a lot. No, it sounds great. I do remember you walking through the plant quite often, and it, it does add your credibility um, for you. I think it's good for the leader to talk to those that are working and, and doing the day-to-day operation. I think it keeps you in touch with uh, the culture, uh, and it builds skill sets on both sides. So I, I think that's terrific. What What words of wisdom or suggestions would you have to an engineer who wants to move up within their company and start leading people, but they, they don't have that skill set yet, you know, and they haven't done that. What, what would you recommend they do? Is it training classes? Is it mentorship? Is it, you know, what, what would you tell them? It's um, all of the above. <laughs> and I think this is, you can learn it. You can, you can make it a tool in your toolbox, but that's just the 101, the basics. I have, and I think people, I would say you best benefit from a role model, from a mentor, somebody who actively lives what you want to learn, somebody that you can watch, somebody that would be ready to talk about this with you, and somebody that can be your sparring partner as you try your own luck and go out and do this. And the the next thing is, Practice, practice, practice. Just try and do it. See what the response is. And people, people have never failed to let me know what they think. And uh, if you want to talk to people, it helps you a lot to be a good listener to understand what message they get, what they are interested in, what inspires them, what scares them. And, uh, making that part of your response. Excellent. Good advice. Absolutely. I, I think it's uh, spot on. And I, I know it's a challenge for a lot of our engineering friends out there. Um, but I think it's, it's definitely doable with some intentional practice and experience as they progress through their career. It is. And it's not dangerous and it's not boring. So there's no reason not to try it. People are never boring. Dealing with people are and never, ever boring, for sure. And people make the difference. Business is people. That is a very, uh, it appears very trivial, but it's a very profound truth. Business is people. I love that. Business is people. So one of the questions I wanted to ask, and I I don't think you and I have ever talked about it, um, but at some point during your career, you decided to go international, um, which is a, a very big commitment to both your career, but also a commitment uh, to your family uh, as they're having to pick up their roots and, and go international. So what was that decision process? What sparked your interest? Uh, what, what, what was the reason you decided to do that? Very flattering about, uh, uh, very flattering of you uh, to say that, that I decided to go international. International came to me and there was no uh, real asking about this. The question was not um, if and uh, when you wanted, once you wanted to have a career in uh, BMW, the question was only where and when. And uh, I really, I really thought that I, I have to say at that time I was young, I was curious, I was ambitious and I loved America. So, so when they offered me the opportunity 
uh, to do this, I was, I was ready to leave uh, the next day. However, and, and you made the point very, very correctly, this is never the decision. And if you wanted to have any significant ingredient of failure in this, it was if it was the decision of an individual. This is, this is always the, the, uh, uh, the decision of a team, of a family, of a couple. And you need to reflect that and to make that decision together. So, so um, the choice at that time, uh, and I don't know, this is the, the choice at that time was between South Africa and, um, and uh, Plan 10 at Spartanburg at that time. And so what, uh, what Birgit and I did, we went uh, to a restaurant, um, which offered us a nice quiet table without the promise to kick us out after dessert. And we took a blank paper and we would sit there for an entire evening and write down the pros and cons of the two uh, locations and the two opportunities. And then we agreed that we wanted to do this. And our kids were, our kids were small, were young enough at that time. Um, we, uh, we, what we did is we, we included them in the decision, but actually we made the decision for them. They were five and eight at that time. Um, and one of them had been in a German elementary school. The, the other one had his proud first day of school in South Carolina. And both of them, this is the interesting thing, as, as you know, we are the typical expats um, that come for three years and then stay or almost or stay and almost semi-return only after 17 years with a second passport. So, so everybody can see from that how, how happy and, and, and how uh, successful the, the entire time in the U.S. were for us. Um, I think the key to doing this in your life is curiosity, is you have to be ready to commit to this. You have to be in a situation where diversity and change means enrichment of your life and not intimidation. And I don't blame anybody if they decide against this. You can be the happiest person in life and in the universe without going abroad, and there's nothing bad about this. But if you feel that learning meeting new people, being in a different culture, different climate, all kinds of things. Um, if that is inspiring you, then it's the right thing to do. And uh, if, you feel, if you feel it scares you to the bone, um, hands off and don't do it. Um, so we, we, we decided uh, within a couple of minutes that we would go and we never regretted it. Um, did have a wonderful time in South Carolina. 15 years is what we left in Greenville. And then we left, uh, we left, uh, we left for California, um, packed up the entire family, the dog, the cats, put them all on an RV and said, next stop Los Angeles, 3,000 miles in six days. A wonderful trip with the entire family. All the kids that were grown by that time flew in from Germany, helped to pack up. And the downside of this is that uh, we had hoped to downsize Birgit and myself. And all of a sudden, we needed um, a room in the California house for each of the kids because they were inspired by the California piece as well. 
And um, one of our kids is still in Los Angeles now. So, so another surprise and uh, another adventure, but it was worth the effort and uh, we, uh, we would do it again. And I, I know your kids these days are still uh, sort of the globe global charters around the world. They like to travel. Uh, they love being in the U.S. and Germany. And I think it seems uh, from from what I know, they've really uh, benefited personally as well as in their careers. They've now been able to experience all of this at a young age and absorb it like a sponge, which has been terrific. Yeah, and we could really say that both of our kids are not only uh, bilingual, they're truly bicultural. So, so there still is a difference. And we could see this when, uh, when they were still at high school and we would say, so, so you want to do this and this with your friends? And then they said, no, we cannot do this with our friends in Germany. We need to do this with our friends in Greenville because the circumstances were culturally different and the other way around. And I think that made a very profound impression on them and, and as a very important ingredient uh, that, uh, that they have. Um, the, there is a downside of that as well, that kids realize more than parents, which is we have roots in Germany that we come from and if you ask them who they are, they would say we are of uh, 40% German, 40% American, and 20% nothing. And they, they miss those roots, um, or they claim to miss those roots. And it's something that we often talk about, and I think you need to address this. And uh, they, what we realize now is uh, that they look for very down-to-earth friends. They are more, they, they're, they're friends with kids who stayed in the same zip code and they're, they're, they're very jealous of that. And then they have a lot of friends that grew up internationally like themselves because these are the ones who understand the absence of roots and uh, pretty much the same that army brats have. And I think, uh, that applies to you as well, to a certain extent, doesn't it, Christina? It, it does. I grew, I grew up uh, all, all around the world. The, I think one of the benefits kids have today is the social media. Um, it, you know, they can keep in touch with folks uh, and friends that they make. Sure. And, and it's a little bit easier uh, than when I grew up. We wrote letters and you eventually lost touch. But I, I absolutely agree with you with Roots. When people ask me where my home is or where I grew up, I don't really have a good, solid answer to tell them necessarily. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly the point. And, uh, but you have something else and that has a different value and uh, both of them need to be in balance. That is, that is, I think, what matters in the end. And uh, I'm, I'm also so um, amazed by distances don't count for our kids anymore. It's only the time zone. What time zone is my friend at? And then they set up some social media contact and they team up with people from all over the world. I always love to listen in when they're at home and they set up their, their video piece with people from all over the world. And that's just fascinating. Yeah, that, that's really amazing. Uh, makes the world a much smaller place. And I think when you're, when yeah. you're traveling like that, that's a a definite benefit. I always tell manufacturing folks if they have the opportunity to go international and it 
and it works to please take the opportunity because not everybody has that uh, chance, but it does have to be a family decision and it does have to make sense for all of the members, not just some of the members. Very much so. But imagine how much has happened. I mean, uh, what we just talked about. And, and when I look back, when I was uh, my early teenage years, it was an adventure to take the train alone and go to the grandparents. And that was a two-hour train ride, and it was an adventure. And today, uh, they look at me like I'm coming from Mars when I tell them that story. <laughs> so funny and so true. So, Clemens, I know we're coming to the, the end of our time. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? What I'm doing now is, um, yeah, as, as, uh, as we mentioned before, I have a, I have a consulting um, I have a consulting company and uh, I do funny things. As I said, there's, there's people who want me as their companion on a journey as, as business owners, as people that uh, look for inspiration, as people that need to grow a business, as people that are expanding to other uh, continents. And uh, actually, my my niche, my very, very small and personal niche in business is actually talking with other people, uh, connecting them, uh, being the matchmaker and, and being a companion on a, on a journey. And I do this as, uh, as a member of several boards of companies. I do this through projects. I do this through finding the right talent to help other people and companies at what they do. And so there's, there's a variety of nuances in, in, in that, but basically, um, being, uh, being of help, uh, for people who look for their growth in the business and in their own experiences. Some of them are younger, some of them are older. So I'm, uh, working and, and, and again, I, I grew up in a family business. I know how these families took. I know how their thinking works. I know what the values are. And again, that helps you to speak the same language. It all comes back to this thing, being in touch, communicating uh, with one another and uh, speaking the same language and, and doing that. And that keeps me excited. That keeps me energized and uh, um, apparently there's no end in sight, uh, for what I'm doing right now. So you, you've used the word, um, companion and matchmaker. Can you give us an example, um, be a little bit specific and tell us what that means? Yeah, well, I can, I can, I can easily share that in the manufacturing industry. So, you know, when, when, uh, when, uh, we were together in BMW, so like 15, 20 years ago, um, the OEMs in the automotive industry were, were in the, uh, in the U.S. and just starting to go to China at that time. And their big suppliers had joined them, the Bosch of this world, the Contis and all of those folks. And, uh, then later, and that goes until the very day of today is the Bosch and the Contis of this world decided that their suppliers also needed to join them. And they went. The, the Bosch tier ones and tier twos already are family owned businesses, businesses between, uh, um, uh, 500 and 5,000 associates. Um, and, uh, they are 
mostly family owned and they're mostly located somewhere in Europe, um, not in the main metro areas, but, but in the countryside. And all of a sudden they said to those people, if you want to deliver to our plant in Sindelfingen, you need to deliver to our plant in Fountain Inn and cater to that plant. And all of a sudden these companies have to decide how, how, how do I do this? How do I get there? How, what do I need? What is the business plan? And they need a master plan for that transition and expansion. And this is where, where we come into the game and help them create that master plan, help them to adhere to that plan. And then as we execute the plan, meet the right people, meet site searchers, meet lawyers, meet accountants and whatever, whatever they, they have to meet state representatives and we travel with them and, and we simply help them. There's people who do not feel comfortable with the language. So, so just, just making them feel comfortable on that journey is what we do. And that eventually they make the decisions. I'm not the decision maker, but we give them the right foundation to make their decisions. They, uh, they decide for a state, they decide for a site, they, they build a plan, they, uh, buy the equipment and the question is do they buy this do they lease this do they buy it in america do they buy it in germany do they buy it in switzerland then they need people and the the, the question is are those subsidiaries that they set up is this going to be a replicate of a european mothership which means that the the head running the operation will be a confident of the owner and which means the first line of management has to be local or do they want to say i want an american company which means the president the ceo is american and then you need to bring in expats to run the expertise uh, on the first line from the mothership and and these kinds of conversations what is uh, a better fit for the culture of the company what is uh, bringing more successful and a particular environment where they're going, all these kinds of questions. And that is a long journey and it doesn't end with the, with the, with the plan starting. Then we look for additions to the business. And, uh, there's some um, several companies that we already, um, have helped to set up the second expansion of their plant in the U.S. And uh, we do the same for American companies that are trying to buy or start something in Europe. And so that's a bi-directional service that we offer to our clients. That sounds really exciting and right up your alley uh, to bring in the international piece and the manufacturing piece, uh, the people piece. So I, I'm, I, I'm quite impressed with your decision. I, I think it's terrific. And I know your clients must really enjoy uh, learning a lot from you as you are their, their companion and matchmaker in their business decisions. I'm a happy camper. <laughs> I'm a totally happy camper at what I do. And it has been, I've been very fortunate that several of the owners of these companies have asked me to join their family boards and help to... Uh, work on the strategy for the entire operation that they globally own. Well, life is too short to have a job that you're not happy in. So I'm, I'm, I am thrilled to hear that you're enjoying the new challenge. So true. And I do. Good. Well, Clemens, I really, really um, appreciate your time. This was um, a, a fun and interesting time. I always learn something new when I spend some time with you. So I appreciate it on a personal and a professional level. Uh, you know, you're one of my uh, kind of mentors in life and in business. So 
Uh, it means a lot that you would be willing to come on and, and share a little bit about your story for the rest of the world to hear. All of uh, what I can say is the pleasure has all been mine. Thank you for joining Manufacturing 365 today. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. I welcome you to reach out to me. My contact information is listed in the description of each episode. Also, you can check out my company at group928.com or through LinkedIn. I'll see you soon.